0: Hi, everyone. This is John Mandrola from the Sensible Medicine Podcast, and I'm talking with my friend and colleague, Dr. Andrew Foy from Penn State. Uh, Today, Andrew's a general cardiologist and an academic cardiologist, and we've talked before. Uh, Welcome, Andrew.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so today, I thought we would talk about a fairly interesting study that was published in JAMA, October seventeenth. This is the effects of the Million Hearts model on myocardial infarction, strokes, and Medicare spending. This was a randomized controlled trial of what it sounds like to me, a uh, sort of policy intervention. Andrew, why don't you um, why don't you tell us about it?
1: Sure. I mean, I guess you know, I would say it's it's a bit of a complicated study, just in terms of of like it's not quite so simple as comparing. Like you know, one medicine to a placebo. Um, so there's some nuance involved, I think, in the in the methods themselves, but then also in the outcomes and how the outcomes, um, you know, were more or less compared. Because uh, it was a very big study; it involved a lot of a lot of, a lot of patients. The patients came from organizations, and the randomization occurred at the level of the organization involved and all these organizations uh, essentially included at least one practitioner uh, who belonged to uh Medicare uh, program and Medicare claims is the way that that sort of outcomes were were tracked and then the results and the comparisons were really sort of modeled uh, based you know uh, as far as I can tell, because it was such a large study, I don't know that um, it, it's hard to know how, how direct the comparisons between groups necessarily were, or if they were sort of comparisons based on model estimations from like a sample of patients in, in the groups, because they were so large. Um, but anyway, I mean, I guess the,
0: well, wait, can I stop you for a second? Sure. Sure. Can I Can I just uh, ask some background? I mean, a Million Hearts model is studying a, a policy intervention, sort of a nudge, but a lot of policy interventions just get hoisted on us without any kind of study, say, you know, like the hospital readmissions policy, because it sounds like a good idea. Um, but I, I mean, I guess I was struck, and I think the reason why we should talk about this is at least at least this was studied. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's important. And, and I guess, you know, what I was going to say right before, before you jumped in was, you know, what, what exactly is being studied here? So what's, what's the intervention, what's sort of the pay for performance involved in this particular intervention? Because it's, it's a little bit diffuse, to be honest. I mean, and, and I think, I guess to boil it down, um, these organizations, if they're in the intervention group, are essentially um, incentivized to reduce uh, beneficiaries' um, cardiovascular risk using using risk scores, which essentially take into account age, um, sex. Um, but the only... The two things that were really sort of modifiable within these risk scores is, is the blood pressure and the cholesterol, um, you know, basically. So, I mean, you could almost argue that it's an incentive program to try to lower uh, participants' blood pressure and cholesterol. Um, and they make a point of talking about the number of participants in the, in these groups whose systolic blood pressure was higher than 130, for example, and whose LDL cholesterol was higher than 70. And I guess the first thing that would strike me is because these were really primary prevention patients to be enrolled, they could not have a claim for a heart attack or a cerebrovascular accident in sort of like the pre-enrollment period, which stretched back pretty far in this case. Um, And so we're talking about, you know, You talked, John, you mentioned like sometimes these things are sort of foisted upon us. Interestingly, in this case, I think the notion that um, we're going to lower participants' risk of future cardiovascular events by reducing blood pressure, let's say, from mid to high 130s to less than 130, and let's say participants' LDL cholesterol in a primary prevention population from, let's say, 100 or like 80 or 90 to less than 70. I mean, I think there is some genuine uncertainty there as regard to like, what you would really even anticipate the bang for the buck out of something like that might be, you know, I mean, I, I've sort of argued and, and in written in the literature that, um, that sort of like targeting a single blood pressure number for large segments of the population may not necessarily be appropriate, particularly targeting less than 130, because the data, in you know, is, is sort of mixed in regard to whether that's a beneficial thing to do or not. I mean, you have the sprint trial, which was a, which showed that 120 versus 140 improved outcomes, but then you have a trial like Accord, which had very similar methodology and really showed no benefit. So, you know, there's some uncertainty involved, I think, within this intervention itself in terms of like how much sort of, um, you you know, how much is there to sort of squeeze out of reducing blood pressure and LDL in this patient population who doesn't seem like they were that bad to begin with. Um, I just have the baseline, sort of the baseline uh, characteristic table in front of me here and the average systolic blood pressure. And the other thing, I guess, to keep in mind for, for people listening is that the investigators were interested in in seeing whether uh, participation in this program at the organization level improved outcomes for patients who were sort of pre specified to be either high risk or medium risk patients? And in fact, patients who were whose estimated risk score was below fifteen percent weren't even uh, included in this particular. Uh, analysis. So we're really talking about medium risk which the authors I think kind of arbitrarily defined as 15 to 30% and then um high risk patients which is 30% or more. And John I thought it was interesting, I don't know if you got this from this study or not. It's not really clear what CV risk score model is necessarily being used and they they mention it I think early in the methods that organizations could use different cardiovascular risk scores so you know the whole the calculation of risk in this case i mean in my mind i'm just thinking of something like the ACC/AHA 10-year mm-hmm. ASCVD risk score but i guess i don't even know for sure if that's the risk score that was used or not cuz that that wasn't entirely clear to me
0: but i mean just the fact that they're paying organizations Million Hearts model paid health care organizations to assess and reduce cardiovascular risk. And they're picking these fairly high risk patients. So, uh, I mean, uh, whatever equation, like the ACC risk calculator of 15% is moderate risk. I mean, these are patients that, I mean, they're, I don't know. I would think that that's pretty high risk
1: well i get no i i'm not really arguing with that but but i guess the thing is if we're assessing like the efficacy of um of a of an incentive program i guess we need to have an idea of what they're trying to incentivize right and so it and it's sort of diffuse or a little bit opaque when you say lowering a patient's risk score, because risk scores are composites. And it's, I mean, this isn't like saying we're incentivizing organizations to lower blood pressure. I mean, we, that's, and I guess the point that I'm trying to bring out is that the two things that are really being incentivized to be reduced here are blood pressure and cholesterol. But it's not, it's not so direct as saying we want a blood pressure target of 120 or below or an LDL cholesterol target of 70 or below because it's wrapped into the, into the risk score model. So changes in those parameters essentially re- lower the risk score and organizations that were in the intervention group are being incentivized to lower the risk score. So the, then the question is, well, how do you lower the risk score? And basically, it's reducing, you know, blood pressure, cholesterol, probably getting people to quit smoking would be included in that. But but again, it, you don't know exactly because we don't know the, the exact risk score that's being used.
0: But I, but I like it, though, because a lot of nudges and a lot of some of these paper performances is how many patients you put on an ACE inhibitor or how many patients are on a beta blocker or how many patients get a mammogram. And this is more like how many patients are you going to just at least sit down with them and measure this score, talk with them about it, and then do things to reduce it. And then they're not looking as an outcome of how many patients got a lower blood pressure. They're looking at the end result of all this MI and and, and cardiovascular outcomes. So I I like I, I mean, I like that design. I think it's I think it's a better design. Uh, That's number one point. And number two point is that we should just say that risk scores are, um, risk scores are composites, right? And when you're talking about cholesterol and blood pressure, that's because in a risk score, just the AHA risk score, what in age, um, uh, uh, smoking, presence or absence of diabetes, uh, high, high blood pressure and cholesterol parameters I think those are the main ones. And the only modifiable ones are cholesterol and blood pressure and I guess smoking. So that's why you're saying that it's basically incentivizing to manage blood pressure and cholesterol. Correct?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: And and what do you think about just the idea of this of rather than rather than measuring how many patients are on a drug or how many patients get a test of actually just incentivizing people to use this model and then go from there? Um, I like
1: it. I I don't. Why? Well, because I would say that, you know, for example, I do this anyway, but as somebody who I think emphasizes the importance of delivering personalized care to people, there's a lot of people that would fall into this medium risk group that wouldn't want to start medication to have their blood pressure reduced from 135 to 125. And there's a lot of people who wouldn't want to start a statin to have or to, you know, increase their statin or add azetamide or be put on another agent to have their cholesterol, you know, reduced to a target less than 70. And when we talk about, you know, the anticipated benefits of those things, you know, I think that they're they're limited. Um, whether you know they exist or not is a different story from saying what can any individual expect to receive from sort of changing changing the, their care to to reach these targets. And so, I don't really you know like the idea of being sort of. Um, I don't like the idea of incentivizing physicians to do this to pay, with patients because I think what it ends up happening is a lot of patients sort of get uh, cajoled into like doing this and they, they basically get care that they don't really want. And the physicians are sort of incentivized not to provide value concordant care to patients, but to provide care to patients to meet an incentive program. I mean, for the, to be quite honest, we use these, most physicians use these scores anyway. And, you know, we talk to patients about and engage patients in shared decision-making about whether they want to do things to lower their blood pressure more or to reduce their cholesterol more. And a lot of times, and we've talked about this on this particular show, it's just not something that a lot of patients are necessarily interested in. And the idea of lowering a composite risk score in somebody from, let's say, 15 to 11% or 12% doesn't mean that much to a lot of people. It means a lot to some people. And in those people, I think we should work with them to achieve those goals. But in a lot of people, that's not that important to them. And so I don't think we want incentives that encourage physicians to provide care to patients that they don't want. Um, and that's what I, that's what I see from any sort of incentive program to be quite honest with you. So, um, but that, that's a little bit different than the research question that's being asked here. What was it effective or not? But in terms of like, do I like this particular program? Because it's not, it's not being, I understand your point. It's not telling us to add this drug or that drug. Um, it's, it's providing a little more wiggle room, but, it's still um, sort of incentivizing physicians to do things to patients that they may not want.
0: I don't know, Andrew. You, I think, are, you, Hershey, Pennsylvania must be a different situation than my situation because, I mean, I'm in the EP clinic, but a lot of times everything's fine with the rhythm and patients ask me, what about my cholesterol? And I'm like, what did your doctor say? They say, well, your cholesterol's high. You should take this drug. And I'm like, well, what did your risk score calculate? And literally zero percent of patients that I have discussed the statin with have had their ten um, uh, year risk calculated. Which is, I said, well, hold on, you got a phone? Let's just pull it up right now. And they're like, holy cow! I mean, I'm going to go from eight percent to six percent. I'm not taking that drug for that. So, and and this trial, this the intervention signed a model participation agreement, which they agreed to perform CVD. Preventive care aligned with guidelines, and as part of the agreement, they agreed to calculate the risk of MI over ten years. So that was the main intervention. I think the main intervention was just to calculate no, this risk no, or no no, no? No, no?
1: no, the main intervention, I, and this is why I, I said this was a little right. complicated. Okay, tell me. I, the main intervention was to lower the risk because that's how you got more of the incentive.
0: Okay. So there, okay. was a
1: sign up, there was a sign-up incentive, but then you had to actually – then there was incentive based on um, meeting, you know, or lowering the risk score. So it wasn't just you calculate the risk score one time and you're done.
0: Okay. Okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay, so the second part, uh, CMS made performance-based risk reduction payments – pay him as CMS page each zero $5, $10 for each high risk beneficiary with an annual risk assessment with monthly payments dependent on mean risk score change. So that was the second part. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Okay. Well then. All right. So that's, that's a good point. All right. So they're, they're nudging people to do it and they're nudging people to, to, to lower risk. Well, they're Um, not
1: nudging people. They're nudging providers. Providers. And it's, and it, if, A provider is being nudged to do something that, you know, it's not, the, it's not the patient who is being nudged, it's the provider. And I think that that creates sort of misalignment of incentives because, I mean, you know, as a provider, we can be very influential. We're oftentimes, I mean, it's very easy to convince people to do things or to not do things. And it's very easy not to have a really honest conversation or a very honest, you know, like engaged shared decision-making process, it's much easier just to sort of like, you know, um, I mean, I don't, maybe dishonest is a little too strong, but we can influence people if we want to. And we can also, it's almost like we can, I mean, how many times do you have patients that you see? I see it all the time where like, you know, they, they saw a primary physician or another specialist, they had medications that were changed and they're like, yeah, I I think I'm on this medicine, but I don't know why, you know, like they're, they're not. And it's, if you try to like, say, well, you know, let's talk about the medicines you're on to lower blood pressure, whatever method you might use, like they don't even know the names of these medicines. And so I think that when I think that these sort of incentive programs for providers Um, I, I just don't, I don't like them. I mean, do I think that when we, when we talk to patients about doing things from essentially prevented, preventive purposes to reduce their risk, we should use a global risk score? Absolutely. Yes. I do it. I don't have no idea whether we were in this particular program or not. I mean, it involved hundreds of large organizations. Um, but I mean, I do it because I believe that that's the right thing to do. Um, If I was, but if I was sort of being told by my organization that, you know, we really care how many of your patients that their systolic blood pressure is less than 130. And if you're not below that, then you're sort of not performing because, you know, these things are assessed at an organization level, but how does an organization assess them at the physician level? Right? So if the organization's getting this incentive, I mean they're they are essentially uh, monitoring what individual physicians are doing. And uh, you know, I feel like i I practice at a fairly high level, but because of that, there might be things that I do that you'd say, "Oh, I mean, why aren't you making more of an effort to get more of your patient's systolic blood pressure?" less than 130 right and I frankly would say well because I don't believe in it for a large percentage of the population to be honest and I don't do you really care what I think and how I've arrived at those views or are you just doing this because of you're in this program with CMS and that's and that's why I don't really like these things
0: but this is such a um, this is such a beautiful spot in the conversation because this is a philosophical, a uh, path, uh, like a, like a, a y, a y, uh in the path through the woods. I mean, one path is, and it, this came up with defibrillators. I mean, we should put defibrillators in patients who are high risk because if you treat a hundred patients with a defibrillator, the fewer will die. But the other path through the woods is we should share these, this data with our patients and our patients should make an informed decision that's uh, concordant with their values. And gosh, darn it, if you do that, you're probably not going to implant as many defibrillators because people are going to look at this data and say, ah, I'm not convinced that I want to do this. And it's the same thing with pre- preventive care. And so it's this philosophical difference between doing the most good on a population level. If you treat hundred patients or a thousand patients versus, you know, if you, if you really inform patients, a lot of times they're, they're, they're not going to do what guidelines say we should do. I mean, I, and I think this is a real tension. Um uh real tension in, in the practice of medicine.
1: Right. No, and I and I so yeah, I mean that's sort of if we just talk about like the philosophical issue with an incentive program, those are concerns that I have. But I still think it's worthwhile to talk about the specifics of okay the outcomes in this case because I think they're quite interesting. Um again, so this- what- so wait, stuff. yeah, to go to the
0: other uh, table. All right, yeah. W- w- wait a second, though. No. Um. So so they randomized. They randomized healthcare organizations, and it ended up being like a hundred and thirty thousand patient study. Um. So this big, huge, like big data. But the randomization is at the level of the organization. But they're, um, then they're looking at outcomes. Uh. Uh, outcomes in individual patients, hard uh, outcomes, right? Like a MACE outcome, MI, right. stroke, TIA identified in Medicare claims, and so um, yeah. Tell us more.
1: Right. So the uh, so the primary they state in the abstract, there's two uh, primary outcomes for this study, um, and I just I just want to read it verbatim because they're easy to mess up because this was pretty complicated Um, so the first primary outcome included the uh basically first time to a composite of cardiovascular disease events which included mis strokes and tias identified using uh, medicare claims data and then the other primary outcome was a combined first time cardiovascular events from claims, which included the ones I just mentioned and cardiovascular deaths, which was based on the national death index. And then there was another significant outcome, which was Medicare spending for cardiovascular disease events and overall spending. And, and then I think the real sort of tricky aspect to this is all of these outcomes were sort of modeled based on a sample of participants, not necessarily on um, like raw counts necessarily of, of these events. That's Mm. my understanding from, from reading this. Um, So yeah, so I guess we have multiple outcomes, which include non-fatal cardiovascular disease events, and then this other outcome that includes these non-fatal events and cardiovascular death. Uh, All-cause death is not a primary outcome. It's one of the secondary outcomes that's mentioned. All right, so then I think in looking at those outcomes, basically, uh, the... And then, uh, sorry, I just want to mention this other thing, which I think is really important that all patients were pre-specified as sort of entry into whether they were in a medium risk group, high risk group, or a low risk group. Low risk patients ultimately weren't enrolled in this study, medium and high risk patients uh, were. At one point, um, the authors say that they're interested initially in just high-risk patients. However, they then combined them with medium-risk patients because they didn't have enough, uh, the event rates were too low. So in the results, the the main result that's mentioned in the abstract is this first time to a cardiovascular disease event and um, the estimated uh, differences, and this was over, uh, I think about a four-year period was was the mean follow-up time um, 15.8 events per 100,000 person years in the intervention group and 17 events per 1000 person years in the control group uh, the p-value was 0.09 and they declared that result as as a positive result for the intervention um, you know, the, the confidence interval of was 0.93 to 1.0. Then that other primary outcome, which included, uh, cardiovascular death, in addition to, uh, the cardiovascular events was 18.7 per 100,000 in the intervention and 20.3 per 100,000 in the control. And that, uh, P value is 0.02 and the the, uh, confidence interval was 0.93 to 0.99. And so I think based on essentially those two results, they declared uh, this positive uh, in favor of, of the million hearts model intervention. Uh, The difference in all cause deaths was was 28 per uh, 100,000 versus 29.7. the hazard ratio is 0.96 and the p-value was 0.01. So they also declared that result as positive. Now, something that uh, I think is interesting is that all of the benefit seems to have been driven by the medium risk beneficiaries, which is probably not what would have been, which was not sort of anticipated a priori, um, whether that was these first time events uh, or death, um, there was significant differences in those medium risk beneficiaries who actually had lower overall event rates. In the high risk beneficiaries, there was really no difference. um, And the p-values tended to be in the range of 0.5 or higher for, for for the high risk beneficiaries. So that brings up just the really interesting point. That's one of our favorite things to talk about. Yep. It's always treatment effect heterogeneity. And, uh, you know, to me, I mean, if you would have said, you know, do this in your high risk patients, which would mean patients who are older and more comorbid conditions, I would say it's even less likely that tight blood pressure control or tight LDL control is going to improve outcomes. Um and we're just gonna be browbeating people that are already on a bazillion medicines and you know, not improving anything. And they essentially found this in this case. The medium risk beneficiaries seem to derive the most benefit, um, which is probably the sweet spot for an intervention like this. Um, but I think that's really important to probably keep in mind that uh, many of our patients are gonna be high risk Um, low risk patients aren't included in here and those high risk patients didn't seem to benefit, uh, really at all from, from this particular intervention. Another thing I just wanted to point out, which is really sort of complicated. So what I talked about, we talked about these composite endpoints, which were represented the main outcomes of interest in this trial. which was MIs, strokes, and TIAs, and then cardiovascular deaths. But if you go to table three, which is the estimated effects of the model on a uh, long-term study on primary and secondary long-term study outcomes, um, it basically just includes more things that aren't included in table two. Uh, things that we always talk about as being very important to understanding the total picture of an outcome's effect. Uh, if you look at all cause hospitalizations in the intervention versus control group for high risk beneficiaries, 309 per 100,000 in the intervention group and 302 in the control group. And that difference was actually seemed to be statistically significant a P of 0.02. So the way this reads to me is that the intervention was associated with higher all-cause hospitalizations, certainly not lower all-cause hospitalizations, probably quite similar. And that was in the high-risk beneficiaries. But then even if we look at the medium-risk beneficiaries, the people that derived the most significant effect when it came to the cardiovascular disease events, all-cause hospitalizations, 231 for 100,000 in the intervention group and 229.5 in the control group. And again, the P value for that difference is 0. 0.02. So am I to read this as to say that the Million Hearts Model Incentive Payment Program Increased all cause hospitalizations in the intervention group, but because it reduced non fatal cardiovascular events, we're calling it a win.
0: You know, when you look at those, when you look at those hospitalization differences in absolute terms, they're not very much different. And then when you look at circulatory system related ED visits, they are lower. So, but, but, but your point could be that you're intervening more and perhaps lowering blood pressure, uh, more aggressive blood pressure control is actually leading to more hospitalizations. It's not reducing them.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I, I mean, it's, you know, you could argue, is this the equivalent of sort of peeing into the ocean? I mean, we talk about that all the time. I mean, did this intervention do anything?
0: Yeah, well, that brings me back to your first point. Is when you know when you discuss the the results. Um, first of all, I mean, the adjusted hazard ratio of the first primary endpoint and second primary endpoint was zero point nine seven and zero point nine six, and those numbers can just blaze over. But that is only a three percent relative disc- difference, which corresponds to, I think, this calculated to point. 0.3% absolute difference in non-fatal events. And so, I mean, that is a really small difference. And maybe because you're studying this many patients, um, you know, it's, it ends up being statistically significant, although we can argue about 0.09, right? I mean, they sort of declared that 0.10 would be the threshold. And I don't know that they really gave a good reason, but nonetheless, it's still a really, really small, absolute difference. Um, And so that either tells you that, that tells me that, yes, in the best case scenario, there was some effect on these cardiovascular outcomes, but it was really, really small. And then your point about it not even budging Uh, all-cause hospitalizations just speaks to the very, very small effect. No,
1: no, no. It actually increased them.
0: I I know it increased them, but not that much. But but look at if you
1: combine the high risk and the medium risk beneficiaries, 255 per 100,000 versus 252 per 100,000, the P on that is 0.005 for a relative change of 3.7%. So what I'm saying is that these interventions that may reduce the risk of these cardiovascular events by a very small margin also seem to be increasing the risk of hospitalizations and other things contained within that by a very small percent. I don't I don't think it's a wash. I mean, the reductions that we're seeing are coming at the expense Of something else. You know, and when we add blood pressure medicines, and even, you know, when we add medicines to lower cholesterol, there are adverse events associated with those things, whether it's injury to the kidney, electrolyte abnormalities, whether it's hypotension leading to falls, whether it's all sorts of things that make people sick and have to be hospitalized. And if and those hospitalizations, May have just a, as much of an important prognostic effect on people as a non-fatal type two myocardial infarction, or I would argue, since we're using claims data here, I don't even have a lot of confidence in myocardial infarction diagnosis because of all the the difficulty with, you know, well the troponins elevated was it a was it a myocardial infarction? Was it really just a myocardial injury? If you strictly apply the fourth universal definition of MI that, you know, yada, yada. I, I'm, I mean, when I look at this hospitalization data, I think it's hard to declare any benefit of this intervention. And then again, pair it with what we see in the high risk beneficiaries who theoretically you could argue were supposed to be the ones more likely to show a benefit in, you know, I, I would, I would, um I would not be enthusiastic To say that this article shows support for the Million Hearts model, regardless of my philosophical opinion on, you know, physician or provider incentive payment programs.
0: This is difficult because in in JAMA it says the Million Hearts model reduces first-time MI strokes. Results support guidelines to use risk scores for CVD. Primary prevention. I well, I agree
1: that we should use risk scores for primary <laughs> prevention. This just doesn't. This doesn't tell us that. I mean, this tells me that if we incentivize it through an incentive payment program, that we're likely to cause as much harm as good, and probably are are going to alienate a lot of our patients as well by trying to browbeat them to do things that they may not want to do for a so very you- small or you know, non-existent benefit.
0: So my, my, um, my pushback is that all cause hospitalizations is, you know, it's a small difference. It's probably, there's so many things going on with these older patients, but, but I think what you're saying is if you're going to hang your hat on a statistically significant reduction in cardiovascular events, you have to also, hang your hat on an increase in all cause hospitalizations. And in fact, if you're using claims data, all cause hospitalizations may be more reliable endpoint than uh, than MI stroke or certainly TIA. I mean, that could be anything, right?
1: I would say it is certainly a more reliable endpoint. I mean, remember, this wasn't a trial that was powered to detect an X percent difference you know, in this particular endpoint, that was systematically adjudicated, and nothing else really was. It wasn't. I mean, this is, you know, big. A lot of patients, a lot, a a ton of events were sort of modeling, you know, effects. But the most reliable data in here, in my opinion, would be all cause death data and all and hospitalization data, because,
0: because, because if your hospital bloodiness
1: of claims data.
0: Right, you're even if you're hospitalized. You're either hospitalized or you're not, or you're dead or you're not. I mean, there's no adjudication and there's no issue with troponins. There's no issue with TIAs. I mean, cr- cr- gosh, people get dizzy and it gets called a TIA. So, um, yeah, this is enlightening because <laughs> it's counter to it's counter to what um, you know the top line results are and. Uh, what about this question i'm just thinking of questions what about the idea that well we look at primary outcomes of studies and all cause hospitalization is just an outcome and it's it's if we look at enough outcomes we may we may see statistical noise how well how would you answer that i'm asking yeah so well i mean i think that that's a reasonable i think that's a reasonable point um but
1: there's, I don't think there's any more reason that there would be statistical noise for that outcome in this particular case than there would be for the primary outcome in, in this study, which was, which were these cardiovascular events. I mean, we're, you know, it's.
0: The other thing I want to get. uh, And, and
1: And I would argue that that P value is quite tight for all cause hospitalizations. I mean, 0.005 when you're dealing with a small difference but a lot of people I mean I don't I mean that seems that there would be a really good that there's that would be very likely to be a real effect
0: so that really I think I mean we've talked about this on the show and, and you have taught me and and this business about you know, when you treat cardiac disease in any way, whether it's primary prevention, heart failure, whatever, you, you're hoping to move a cardiovascular hospitalization. Um, but sometimes when you're treating these older, higher risk patients, cardiovascular hospitalization is only, you know, a small part of the pie. If you look at a circular pie graph, it's just like one slice. It's like maybe one fifth or one seventh of the total hospitalizations of, say, the average 75 or 80 year old person. And so even if you reduce cardiovascular hospitalizations, if your cardiovascular intervention um, uh, causes other problems like low blood pressure, um, uh, kidney disease, whatever, then you might actually increase um, total hospitalizations. And I think that's what you're talking, I mean, that's what you're talking about in terms of this high risk, medium risk, low risk uh, uh, groups, this sort of so-called Heterogeneous treatment effects,
1: right, right, and I that that's exactly right. Um, it does seem like in this paper that the medium risk uh, patients derive the most benefit in terms of the primary outcomes of interest. However, even for those patients, there still seem to be an increase in all cause hospitalizations, um, and I wonder, you know, it it just. You know, it's one thing to say in a clinical trial where the primary endpoint is this composite, and it's powered to detect a difference in in this composite, um, and then all cause hospitalizations are just some other sort of secondary outcome among twenty, and you don't really have sufficient power to say much about that endpoint in particular. That you shouldn't probably hang your hat too much on differences in those secondary endpoints but this isn't really doesn't seem to be that sort of a case to me because again it was this wasn't really powered per se for this particular endpoint it based on you know these assumptions and the assumptions aren't even correct based on the risk scores used and and those sort of things like it's so it's it's sort of like a, a lot of different endpoints could have been the primary endpoint of interest in this case because we have a you know a lot of patients that are in this study with a lot of events and i mean just because they pick those doesn't mean that other endpoints aren't also important or or differences in them might not be equally valid or even more valid and again that the p value on the hospitalizations is much more convincing than the p value on the primary outcome.
0: Right, right. I get your point that this is a big, muddy, big data trial, and it's it it's different than just hanging your hat on this, you know, nineteenth of twentieth secondary outcome of say a a you know of a of a kind of a tight clinical trial looking at one thing with one intervention that's clean.
1: Yeah, right. That, that's a, that's exactly the point that that. I've, That I would want to
0: make there. All right. So, wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. What, I mean, so our interpretation, your interpretation of this on a podcast that some will listen to, but many won't. um, Here it is in JAMA, uh, I'm sure read by gazillions of people. um, I mean, the average person is going to look at this and think, well, heck, we should be doing this, you know, this million hearts model intervention, this is good. But, you know, the, when you look carefully at the data, uh, maybe it's it's not so much. I mean, how, how would you wrap this up? What would your take home be?
1: Um, well, I mean, I guess I would say that I don't think that the intervention in this case um, proved to to be beneficial significantly beneficial to the patients that were enrolled through organizations in the intervention group um, compared to the control group based on you know the small uh, difference in the primary outcomes which only see, which seemed to be driven by the medium risk not the high risk beneficiaries who weren't the originally intended recipients of this to begin with um, so that's one thing I think the, the, the benefits are marginal at best. Um, but then too, I mean, if we look a little further into the data, I think it would, it, it challenges that altogether, suggesting that pay for performance to incentivize reducing, essentially reducing blood pressure and cholesterol, um, appears to increase, all cost hospitalizations when it's applied in this sort of blanket fashion. All that being said, I don't really disagree with the conclusion on the abstract, which is the, the last sentence results support guidelines to use risk scores for, for CBD prevention, which is sort of a very, you know, um, uh, you know, I don't know that the that the results. Support that, but using risk scores for cardiovascular disease primary prevention, I certainly agree with that. Engaging patients in in shared decision making about you know preventive, uh, making changes to preventive therapies based on risk scores uh, is is the way to go. Um, But this Million Hearts model and this this pay for performance program, in in my opinion, does not. uh, I mean, it really didn't benefit patients uh that were in these organizations to any significant extent
0: right but um it also didn't increase uh mortality so mortality was neutral so all-cause hospitalizations went up we might have increased the burden of care but it didn't have an effect on on all-cause death doesn't seem to right and so but what what is your larger conclusion about just Performance measures and 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 nudging in general. Can we say anything about that from this? I, I mean,
1: I don't think so. I mean, not. I, you know, if there were, I think if the results um, were more conclusive, I, I suppose that you could that you could. But I don't find the results um, very
0: conclusive or uh, compelling. And I guess one of my final questions will be. I mean what does this say about the incremental benefit of more aggressive risk factor modification
1: that it's really incremental
0: <laughs> that is awesome i guess, I guess it's how awesome. you
1: def- define incremental but maybe my incremental creeping might be the you know a way to yeah, that's very yeah. incremental. I mean, it it might be something that, but but again, we don't we don't need this to tell us that we know that from you know from the clinical trials, which give us much cleaner answers to these questions than if you were to sort of try to apply those things at the population level and and sort of twist providers' arm, well, twist patients' arms into doing it. I mean, we already know that the benefits are are creeping and incremental based on the best data from clinical trials, right? And so, of course, it's going to be even less impressive when applied at the population level. I mean, that's sort of obvious, it would seem.
0: But I mean, you could argue that you could say on a patient level, it's a small incremental benefit at most, but if we we treat 100,000 patients, then we should be able to show those small incremental benefits ought to add up but this doesn't even show that which really i think speaks to the incremental nature of it
1: i yeah i mean i don't think that i would necessarily anticipate that they would add up but again, right well you could say it do, it did add up for the primary outcomes
0: oh you po- could no no 23%. right 3%
1: right well how much would you expect i mean i i'm not sure i would expect much more because it, these 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 aren't the patients in the clinical trials, some of them might be particularly some of those medium risk patients, but most of the high risk patients would never be included to begin with. And so I wouldn't anticipate they would derive an equal benefit, I would expect it to be less. So I would factor that into the equation. And and 0.3% isn't a whole lot different than what we see. And, you know, oftentimes, the best absolute risk reductions, I think we can expect from clinical trials applied you know whether we're talking about a composite endpoint or an individual endpoint which we rarely see anymore as the primary outcome but we really can't expect much more than 1 to 2% difference i mean i i can't think of too many things where the difference is more than 1 or 2% and I, and i again if i would say take that out of a clinical trial bring it to the level of the population i'd sort of reduce the anticipated effect by at least half and i'd say double the adverse events right so, is... I and mean, it's sort of you know I mean so it isn't that far from point three if that's you know if that's sort of like what we're seeing here um and I and it wouldn't surprise me if it increased all cause hospitalization yeah really no effect on all cause death
0: you could also make a comment about standard care I mean standard care is is pretty good. Yeah, maybe it's
1: not that bad. I mean, maybe a lot of physicians are already doing this. Maybe a lot of physicians, you know, are already thoughtfully applying, you know, who are my patients that I can treat their blood pressure and be a little more aggressive and we can try to get below 130, get close to 120. I mean, maybe they're only on one medicine and it's at a suboptimal dose. And, you know, there's, I mean, I, I wouldn't assume that the majority of providers don't sort of know these basic things, you know, like try to get blood pressure 130 or less when it's easy and, and achieve, you know, when it's easy to do so. You know, try to get, you know, manage cholesterol so that the LDL is less than 100 when it's sort of easy to do and, and, and easily achievable. So, yeah, and I guess those are my conclusions. I, I don't view this as a win for this particular program
0: that is so good i mean we've gone on for an hour about a trial that i mean really was kind of complicated but also so many so many great things and i think this is why i learned so much from you and i really really appreciate you talking with us and um this is exciting i th- i think it's a great insight into this uh, not not just the specifics but general rules of thumb so thank you
1: yeah no thanks this is uh About as much fun as we're going to have talking about
0: uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) a clinical trial of a payment performance program.
0: All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right.
1: Here